It's good to be here. I'm, uh, I'm very humbled um, to stand before you on homecoming day. I'm not sure why he asked me. I think he likes to see me suffer. Um, anyway, thank you for, for being here. You're a, you're a beautiful church. I see a lot of new faces, uh, a lot of pews that are filled. And uh, not only do you have beautiful facilities, but you, as the body of Christ, you are, you are beautiful. And you are beautiful to the sight of God as well. Um, this is my wife, Crystal. She's my beautiful part. Uh, <laughs> And my daughter, Ellie, she's, uh, I think, went to the back. Um, very blessed family. We got one more on the way. So I have one and a half kids right now. And uh, so pray for my wife and pray for us as well, that God will um, guide us and uh, help us to be the parents that we're supposed to be and that he will provide. He always has. So uh, all glory goes to him. Um, Today what I'd like to do is uh, give you a gospel presentation. Uh, I'm an artist by trade, and so I'm a very visual person. Um, so if I can ever incorporate the gospel into painting, that's, that's what I like to do. And so today you see uh, basically a blank canvas, empty background with uh, an empty plate. And I know today's homecoming. And so possibly... We have this nice crowd because some of you are hungry. Uh, I understand that. I'm Baptist. I'm, you'll probably hear my stomach growling on the mic here, so just, just never mind that. Um, so my theme, I guess, today is what's on your plate? What are you finding your satisfaction in? And so that's what I hope uh, to convey in the message today. Um, But if you would, please turn to John chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 6. Make sure I've got everything. John chapter 6. I'm going to read a few key verses. And we'll focus mainly on the middle part of the chapter, so just bear with me. We're going to start in verse 1. John chapter 6, verse 1. After these things, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great multitude followed Him because they saw His miracles, which He did on them that were diseased. Now look down to verse 14. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. And when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. Now look down at verse 23. Uh, Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias, nigh to the place where they did eat their bread. After that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping and came to Capernaum, seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do, that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. 
All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I am, I am so needy right now. Lord, we are all needy. Lord, we, we pray that you will ignite a hunger inside of us, not for the things of the world, but Lord, may you be our bread and our water that satisfies. Lord, would you do a work in our hearts that, that I cannot do? Lord, I can only speak your word, and I pray that you'll help me to do that faithfully. But Lord, I can't convince anybody to be hungry. Uh, that's your work. So Lord, I pray that you will do what man cannot do today, where we fail. Lord, I pray that you will, you will triumph. So, Lord, do a work in our hearts, and uh, may your Holy Spirit breathe through this place, Lord. And if you're not in the midst of us, we invite you here, and uh, we, we desire fellowship. We desire to worship you. We want to lift you up and to praise your name today. Lord, may you be high and lifted up, and will you put us in our rightful place, low and on the earth. So, Lord, we thank you and praise you for all things, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so, if you notice, I skipped around a few of the verses. Chapter 6 is an incredible chapter. Uh, I would invite you, read the whole thing. Don't just skip and pick out a few little verses. Read the whole thing. Because you'll see a lot of the methods that Jesus used in speaking to public. And this chapter to me is so amazing because when it first starts out, you see the feeding of the 5,000. We skipped over that part. We probably all know the story. But you have this great multitude, some 5,000 men, probably way more than that, including women and children. So this great multitude of people have come to Jesus at the beginning of the chapter. And when we first see that, I can't help but say, yes, Lord, you're, you're finally making it. Jesus, you're doing it. You're, you've got mega church going on right now. And so we look at that and say, man, this is great. But then you keep reading. And by the end of the chapter, he goes from 5,000 men to 12. Actually 11, because one was not a believer. So throughout the chapter, you see a seemingly victory but then all of a sudden, failure, failure, failure. And if we look at it from human perspective, we'd say, Jesus, what happened? Uh, why didn't you get the big crowd? And you'll see some of the very hard sayings that he says here, but it's hard truth. And what he does is, throughout this chapter, I think you're going to see, he examines the motives and the methods of men. And he is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so you're going to see him go from multitudes down to just a few. And so let's look at that today. Let's first of all look at what is our motivation for coming to Christ? What are our motives? Look at here in verse 2 of chapter 6. And a great multitude followed him. Why? Because they saw his miracles which he did on them that were diseased. This does not sound bad. At first glance, I'm thinking, okay, that's not, it's not too bad, right? But then I think back throughout the book of John. I've heard this language before. Go back to John chapter 2. Look at verses 23. John chapter 2, verse 23. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name. Hallelujah. Great. When they saw the miracles which he did. I don't see anything wrong with that. Look at verse 24. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So many believed in his name, but yet he did not commit himself, which that's the same word for believe in that former verse. They believed in Him because of the miracles, but He did not believe in them. What an 
a strong statement. And so I have to look at that and say, why? What, why did he not commit himself? Why did he not entrust himself? Why did he not believe in them? Is there possibly a belief that is not unto salvation? Is there a faith that does not save? And I think you're going to see that that is the case. So they believed on him because of the miracles. What is wrong with miracles? Miracles are great. Look at John chapter 10 and look at verse 25. Surely miracles are not a bad thing. And they're not. Look at verse 25 of John chapter 10. Jesus answered them, I told you and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. So the purpose of the miracle is that it bears witness to Christ. The purpose of the miracle... Get my paintbrush out here. purpose of the miracle is to be a sign. It's to, to point to something. But these multitude and these people in John chapter 2 and also in John chapter 6... They've seen miracles, they're seeking miracles, but they're not seeking the essence of the miracle. It's kind of like if I went out to, let's say I go out here to your front yard, and I notice you have a, a beautiful sign, Community Baptist Church. It's on a brick, brick sign with nice white letters. And I go out to that sign, I look at it and say, wow, that's a beautiful sign. Look at the brick. It's so nice and straight, and the letters are on there just so perfect. That's beautiful. And what if that's the only thing that I saw? That's kind of what happened with these Jewish people here. They looked just at the miracle. But the miracle is a sign that points to something. So when I look at a sign, I don't say, hey, nice sign. I say, what is the sign pointing to? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. The heavens declare the glory. So many of us today, especially in uh, the realm of science, they look at the stars and the moon and the sun, and they say, wow, nice stars, let's study them. But they miss the essence. The heavens declare, the, the creation proclaims the glory. It just points to Christ. The same thing with the miracles. We don't look at the miracle and say, wow, nice miracle. What can he do for me? What can this, they almost treat him as a sideshow. He's a trickster. He can perform all these nice tricks. Hey, what can you do for me? Let's go follow this guy to see what he can do for us. And so their motivation, which was wrong, was they just wanted to see a miracle. Let's just see something Real snappy. Show us something. So, here we are with our empty plate. And the first wrong motivation was that of miracles. They looked for the miracles. They were looking at the miracles and not the essence of the miracle. Notice, secondly... John chapter 6. After the feeding of the 5,000, he took five loaves and two little fish and fed all these people. Did a, a wonderful, beautiful, gracious thing to these people. But notice what happens in verses 14 through 15. Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth that prophet." That should come into the world. They're looking back to, uh, I think it's Deuteronomy chapter 18, where Moses prophesied that there will be one like me who's going to come. He's going to do things like me. And him, you better listen to him, because if you don't listen to him, you're going to be cut off. Okay? And so they're saying that, hey, this is of truth. This is surely that prophet. Look what he did for us. He provided this food for us in the wilderness. And look at verse 15. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed. 
He left them. So the next motivation was, we want to make this guy king. We want to make him a monarch. And so that's our next motive. Some people look to Christ for political reasons. These people, understanding the story and what they had just seen, they just got their bellies filled. They just got their sick people healed. So now they're looking at it from a political perspective. They're saying, hey, wow, this is surely that prophet. We're under Roman bondage. So why not? Let's take this guy, make him king, get our land back, get our kingdom back. We'll have free health care because he heals everybody. You get sick, you get healed. We'll have free welfare. You hungry? Make some bread. He's got it all. Why not make him king? And you think, well, that's, that's not bad. I mean, because he is the king of kings. He did come to be king, but did he come to be king the first time? No, there's uh, another priority that he has. He came to be the redeemer, and the people didn't see that. They saw political persecution, and this is our way out. This is our, let's make him king, let's, let's use that as our motivation. So, the statement was made directly after he healed their sick and filled their bellies. So, their, their motivation was one of physical needs. It revealed the kind of king they were looking for, the kind of Messiah they were looking for. They wanted a Messiah or a king who would satisfy their unregenerate desires. My body is not born again. My body, my flesh, has cravings, has desires. And they saw this king or this person, this Jesus, as a means of, he can be useful to me. He can give me what I want. Let's take him. So they wanted to make him a monarch. But let me say this. Notice what it says there in verse 15. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force, you cannot and you will not manipulate Jesus. You come to him on his terms. You will not come to him on your own terms. And so he makes that very evident here. When you come to him demanding that he fulfills what your body craves, Notice what he does here. Verse 15, he departs. He will not have that. And so their motivation was wrong, firstly, in miracles. They just looked at the sign. Secondly, their motivation was wrong. They wanted a monarch. They wanted just a king who would relieve their fleshly desires. Thirdly, look at John chapter 6. Look at verses 26. We're going to read down through verse 34. Jesus answered and said, This is after he walks on the water that next night. He feeds the 5,000 at the nighttime. He walks on the water after he sends his disciples back across the sea to Capernaum. He walks on the water. He goes to the other side of the sea. Well, the next morning, the same crowd wakes up. A new crowd is arriving at the same time. And I can imagine at this time that everybody's talking about it. Man, he just fed all these people. Man, you've got to get in on this, man. It's awesome. And so here all these people are saying, well, where's he at? Well, he was just here. Um, Obviously, he's went across the other side. There's no boats here. Let's let's go check out Capernaum. So all this crowd, they're going to Capernaum. They're looking for this Jesus, this miracle worker. And so here they go. They find him. And they say, hey, whence comest thou hither? When did you get here? How did you get here? And notice his response. This is a very interesting response that he gives. Verily, verily, I say unto you, you seek me not because you saw the miracles, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for that meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. So he tells them, I know your motives. You're not seeking me because I'm the Son of God. You're seeking me because you want your bellies filled. 
Look at verse 28. Then said they unto him, well, if you tell us that we're supposed to labor not for the meat which perishes, but labor for, labor for the meat that does not perish, well, then what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Verse 29, Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Notice verse 30. They said therefore unto him, What sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? Our fathers did eat manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. What an unusual, ridiculous response. Think about it. The day before, he feeds 5,000 with five little loaves and two fish. And then the next day they say, Okay, if you want us to believe on you, then show us a sign. What sign do you give us? <laughs> uh, were you not there at the feeding of the 5,000? What happened? Are you, are you short-term memory? What's going on? And so here these people, their motivation was purely for meat. They wanted food. Meat. So they got the wrong motives again. Look at it. We have the weird response. And what they're pointing back to is what Moses did in the wilderness, according to Jesus' response here. Obviously, in in verses uh, 30 and 31, there was some implication that what Moses, what the children of Israel went through in the wilderness, this was done by Moses. And so Jesus corrects them and says, It was not Moses that gave you this bread, but it's the Father. And notice what else he says. The Father giveth you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. And so their motivation was one of food. Why are they saying this? They just saw 5,000 people the day before get fed. Probably the same people were part of those. Why are they saying this? Show us a sign. The only response that I can give for that is, it's a new day. Their bellies are growling. Their stomachs are empty. It's a new day, Jesus. You showed us that sign yesterday. But Moses did this, not just one time, but Moses did it for 40 years. Now, if you want us to believe in you, then you keep on feeding us. Give us something today, because today my belly's hungry. Look down at verse 34. After he responds about the bread of God, they say this. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. Evermore means continually, always. Keep on doing it. Moses did it for 40 years. And if you're that prophet that's like him, why don't you keep on doing it for 40 years? Show us a sign. So their motivation was one of food. They wanted their their bellies filled They were not looking at what Moses had accomplished through God's work in the wilderness as a shadow of what was to come, as a typology of what was to come. They were looking again at the miracle. And so their motivation was one of their bellies. And so here's what I can see in this. The response of the people shows what an unbeliever's desires and thought life is like. The desires and thoughts of an unbeliever, he constantly has uh, this empty void that is not satisfied and never will be satisfied on his own. Unbelief Never satisfies. Here's another verse. Let me give you a verse that says this. Luke chapter 16, verse 31 says, And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Unbelief is never satisfied. You guys just had a Christian apologetics conference. And that is wonderful. But I can argue all day intellectually 
with an unbeliever about the resurrection. And I can prove to him the resurrection. But his next question will probably be something like this. Okay, all right, I'll give you that. Maybe the resurrection happened. But what about Noah? What about all them? How do you get all them animals on the ark? Is that not what happens with an unbeliever? Is that not what happens with us as natural men? We're never satisfied. We, we cannot believe that. Okay, you proved that one point. You, you won that intellectual battle. Let's go to another one. Let's go to another one. So how do you solve that? Well, there has to be a work of the Holy Spirit. You have to get through the intellect to the conscience. And that's where uh, work is dealt with. So we have here, uh, we have a problem with meat. They just saw Jesus as useful. He will just enhance my life. That's why we want him. He's a life enhancement. I want him because of all different kinds of motivations. The true treasure that he was. But they saw him as a means of fulfilling their own carnal desires. And that's what so many of us, when we were unbelievers, that's what we did. And I don't know your hearts here today, but possibly there's someone in the midst that says, you know what? Jesus, if you'll heal me, I'll believe on you. Jesus, if you'll provide for me, if you'll pay my bills, make sure my, my rent's paid, then I'll take you. Jesus, if you'll give me that Mercedes that I've always been wanting, I'll take you. And sadly, that religion is preached all across America, that if you've got the faith, you can name it and claim it, the prosperity gospel, and it sends many to hell. That is not the true gospel. And so we see wrong motives. In all those cases, they just looked at Jesus as being useful. Secondly, we're going to look at the methods. Look at chapter 6. Look at verse 27 and 28. Jesus tells them, Labor not for the meat which perisheth. This bread that you're looking for, these things are temporary. Don't labor. Don't spend all your time and your effort on things that are temporary. Okay? But labor... As he's implying that, labor for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. So don't labor for the temporary, but there is a form of labor for those things that are eternal. Now what is he saying here? They, they take that naturally. They don't, they don't understand spiritual things, just like we didn't either. When they hear that phrase, they say, okay, Verse 28, they said unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? You tell us to labor for the meat that does not perish, then what shall we do that we might work the works of God? Now by its own simple reading here, can man do works of God? Or is that works of God? It's kind of hard to do that, isn't it? And so what we're going to see here is there is not, you cannot, man cannot on his own earn his own righteousness. Absolutely impossible. Uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5 says this, Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. And of course we know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So we see that. We know that. And we as Baptists, probably mostly Baptists in here, I'm not sure if we've got any other denominational tag, but we all have the understanding. Yeah, we understand that it's not by works. Well, I can't come up here and do sacraments. I can't. Communion doesn't do it for me. Baptism doesn't do it for me. Uh, all these things doesn't do it. We all agree to that. But what happens with the modern message that's being proclaimed probably right now as I speak all across America? Surely they're not proclaiming righteousness by works, but actually they are. 
when they say, hey, if you want to be saved, you want Christ, come up here to this altar, and I want you to repeat this prayer after me. That is the wrong method. It's not about repeating prayers. It's not about inviting Jesus into your heart. It's about faith and repentance. It's not anything that you do. Just because you say a magic set of words does not guarantee you salvation. Words mean nothing. You say, well, what about Romans chapter 10? Look at, go there real quick. Romans chapter 10. Everybody likes to proclaim Romans 10, 13. Where is it? Romans 10, 13 says, For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. See, you've got to actually call. You've got to come out of your mouth. It's confession made by the mouth. It's all these things that you've got to do. And they proclaim that. But they forget verse 14. It says this, How then shall they call on Him whom they have not believed? Belief is from the heart. And it works itself out in a manifestation from your mouth, possibly. You don't have to pray a certain prayer to be saved. That's not the method. Some people, and I've, I've spoken this to, to people who are in Orthodox Christianity, and look at me like I'm, like I'm crazy. And I say, okay, do you believe the Scripture? Do you believe this right here is the Word of God? And they say, yes, of course. They'll say, amen to that. Is this all we need? Absolutely, it's all we need. Then why do we come up with extra biblical methods of coming to Christ. Nowhere in Scripture does it say, invite me into your heart, and that means you're saved. Nowhere does it say, does an apostle or Jesus himself say, hey, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, now repeat this prayer after me. It doesn't say that. Biblically, it says, repent and believe. Jesus, through the Gospel of John, says, believe, believe, believe. So, we have wrong methods. We believe, they believe in that day, that was by works. These Pharisees, uh, very legalistic in their religion, thought, well, hey, I'm... I got my outside cleaned up. Man, I wear the right clothes. I talk the right way. I pray the right way. I fast the right way. I do everything the right way. And Jesus even told them, you're, you're whitewashed tombs. Your outside is clean, but your inside is like dead men's bones. So it's not a matter of the things that you do on the outward. It's not about your appearance. It's not about the things that you say. He's dealing with the heart. So, out of all this, what do we have? We're left with, look at John chapter 6, look at verse 36. After all this stuff that Jesus proclaims to them, I'm bread, I've done all these things for you, you're not coming to me for the right reasons, but I am bread, I stand before you as bread. Look at verse 36, but I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. That is the plight of the natural man. You can give him all the evidence in the world. You can put before him bread, bread, bread. And they say, I will not believe. That is what the natural man is inclined to do. So, we have nothing but failure. If salvation was completely up to man, no one would ever come to him. Okay. Failure. (laughs) All right. So, here we are. You say, man, what is all this negativity? All you've talked about is wrong methods, wrong motives, and... Just on behalf of man, it's nothing but failure. And if I were to leave you that way, we'd be miserable. But it's my intention, if God will help us, to make you hungry. 
before you will take bread and eat it, before you will take the water of life and drink it, first you've got to be hungry. First you've got to be thirsty. So what can I do to bring that about? The only thing that I know can, that I can do is to show you that you are hungry. And so here we go. The last part, how do we fix this? How do we get past the failure? How do we, how do we look at Christ and desire Him? It has to be through the message. So He gives us an object lesson of bread, right? The day before, He has passed out all these loaves of bread. He's, he's created bread from five loaves and two fishes. And now He's using that as His object lesson saying, I am that bread of life. You came hungry physically, but I'm offering you something spiritually that will satisfy. So here's what he does. He shows us that eternal life is through the bread. Look at verse 32. Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. Look at verse 33. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. Look at verse 35. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Look at verse 48. I am that bread of life. Look at verse 50. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. Verse 51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. So, eternal life is through this eating of the bread. What is this bread? He shows us in verse 32, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven. Talking about the manna. The manna was just a shadow. It's just a type. The Old Testament is pointing forward to Christ. He says here, Moses gave not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you true bread. What does it mean for true bread? Is it a possibility that the bread that they were eating was not true? What does true mean? The word here means basically reality. This is the real thing. The things that you're wanting from me, the things that we crave in life, are temporary. They're temporal. They're going to burn one day. However, he says, the bread which I offer you is true. It's the real thing. It's spiritual. It's everlasting. Look at verse 55. This explains it a little farther. For my flesh is meat indeed, truth. That's what that means, indeed, is truth. And my blood is drink indeed. My flesh is true meat. My blood is true drink. Everything else in life is not the real thing. Christ is the real thing. He is the substance that satisfies. Verse 51, he talks about what is this bread I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh. So he makes it very personal here. This bread that I'm offering you, it's me. It's my body. It's my flesh. So what is he saying here? That it's his flesh. Well, here is where we find the crux of the message. It is the cross. It's not food. It's not politics. It's not miracles. But the gospel. That's where you're going to find your satisfaction. So, here's what he does. In verse 51, he makes it plain to them, my flesh is going to be broken. It has to be broken. Why does it have to be broken? Why does somebody have to die? 
In a nutshell, we are all criminals against a just and a holy God. How do I know this? Because we have all broken the commandments of God. We have willingly disobeyed Him. When the Bible says, Thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not bear false witness, and I tell a lie, I'm a liar. You're a liar. The Bible says that all liars shall have their part in a lake which burneth with fire. If I've ever taken anything that does not belong to me, that is stealing. And God says that you're a thief. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, it says, Be not deceived. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we can go on down the list. But James tells us if you've broken one, you're, you're guilty of breaking them all. And so we are criminals before a just and a holy God. We have not just offended each other. We've not just offended some mayor or city councilman. We've offended the Creator. We have committed crimes against Him. And so therefore, there must be a punishment. He must punish sin. Nahum chapter 1 verse 3 says, God will not at all acquit the wicked. He will not just let the wicked go free. There must be payment. And here's what He does. Out of His grace and out of His mercy, He has provided a way. He became flesh. God, the Creator, became a man, came down to this world 2,000 years ago. And the punishment that I deserve... And that you deserve. He went to a cross willingly. And all of God's wrath was emptied on him. And he absorbed it and drank that cup of God's wrath. And now he offers you everlasting life. Now he stands before you and says, I'm bread. I'm water. These things that you're going through in your life, these things you're trying to fill, that empty void, that empty plate that you have. I'm the substance. I am bread. I'm the only thing that can satisfy your deepest longings. Not relationships. Not entertainment. Not your pleasures of the flesh. I'm true bread. I offer you life. And notice the scope of it. It's not just to these these little few Jews here. He says, I offer it to the world. I go beyond racial barriers. I go beyond nationalities. I go beyond ethnic barriers. It doesn't matter if you're red, yellow, black, or white. It doesn't matter if you're a female or male. I came for you all. I'm offering myself, my bread, my my life to the world. Over and over and over he says this. Isaiah 55 says, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money for that which is not bread? Why do you labor for that which satisfieth not? What is your satisfaction today? Christ offers Himself to you today. He offers it to you. Notice what He says there in verse 32. My Father giveth you, you. If you're an unbeliever, He's talking to you. Don't neglect Him today. May He be your all satisfaction. What does it mean to believe in Him? Look at verse 35. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. So look at also the the last part. And he that believeth on me shall never thirst. These are parallel statements. They're synonymous statements. He that believeth on me as not to hunger, and he that cometh to me, excuse me, cometh to me as not to hunger, but believeth on me as not to thirst. He quenches your hunger, he quenches your thirst, and it's believing. What does that mean? In a nutshell, basically, here's what it means. When you come to Christ, you are coming to Him neglecting and cutting away 
every worldly satisfaction that you have and you're pointing yourself to Christ as He is going to be my supreme and ultimate treasure. He is going to be my bread that completely satisfies me. No more of the worldly stuff. That is repentance. You turn your back from that and you turn yourself to God. That's repentance and belief in Him, the work that He has done on the cross. He took my place. He took your place. When He stood in my law place, the the wrath of God was poured out on Him. He can now legally declare me righteous based upon my faith in Him. What a glorious, gracious thing He has done for us. So I ask you today, Where's your satisfaction? Is He your bread? Is He your living water? Come today. He offers it to you freely. So come. My wife will sing a couple songs. I'm going to finish the painting. And Pastor, I'll be done.
His heart was broken, mine was mended. He became sin, now I am clean. The cross that He carried bore my burden. The nails that held Him set me free. His life for mine, His life for mine. How could it ever be that He would die, God's Son would die, to save of suffering brought me healing He spilled His blood to fill my soul His crown of thorns made me royalty His sorrow Father, thank you. Thank you for the picture that you have given to us today. A picture of our lives empty without Christ. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Is your plate empty this morning? Be honest. You've been trying to fill your life with everything temporary. 
Today, Jesus Christ says, if you're thirsty, if you're hungry, come. Has God spoken to you today? I want to give you this opportunity in this moment of stillness, no one looking around. Is God dealing with you today? Your plate's empty and you need Christ to fill it. Would you raise your hand and put it back down? Just raise it up and put it back down. That's me. Amen. Amen. All around the room. Anybody else? My plate's empty. I need, I, I need the bread of life. Anyone else? Amen. Anyone else? Lord, you know every soul in this room. And you know everyone whose plate before you is empty. Lord, for those who were honest before you, they, they know that your Spirit is speaking to them. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. That you satisfy their need that only you can do. Only you can satisfy that, that need. Father, meet their need. I pray in this moment, Lord, that they do call upon the only name given under heaven amongst men by which we can be saved. And it is the name of Jesus Christ. And Lord, that's not a call in a magic prayer, as Jeremy said, but it's a call from the depths of the soul that says, God, I need you. Forgive me. I'm turning from this temporal world and I'm surrendering my all to you. And I'm praying, God, that by your grace... You'll forgive me. And Lord, you've promised that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And Lord, you know them. And you know if it's because of any of these reasons that were painted on this canvas. And yet, Lord, you also know if it's a need because they recognize their sinfulness before a holy God and they recognize their need to be made clean, their need to be made whole. And so, Lord, hear the cry of their soul. And Lord, may everyone across this room call unto you in this moment. May we all reach to you, Lord, to say, Father, forgive us. And for those believers, for us believers, Lord, who, who have sin in our life that uh, we need to forsake, you promise us also, Lord, that if we'll confess our sins, you are faithful. And you are just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Fill our plate this morning, Lord, in that sense. I'm going to ask that in this moment that you'll just take some quiet time in your own soul to speak, speak to your Heavenly Father and you do what needs to be done. Let Him shine His light of grace into your heart and reveal the areas that we need to confess. And if it's a repentance from this world and to call upon Him for salvation, I pray you listen to the Spirit of God as He moves in your heart. Father, again, thank You. Thank You for Your truth that's been preached. Thank You for the move of Your Spirit, Lord, that no doubt is, is dealing with many hearts in this room even now. Lord, thank You for sending Your Son, Jesus Christ. Because without Him, Lord, we would still be in our sin. Help us to be the people we need to be. Help us to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, not the flesh. Thank You, Lord. Thank You for Your grace. In Jesus' name, Amen.